Welcome to part two of episode five of Del Bidel Heart to Heart Conversations with the Global Iranian Diaspora podcast. This episode, Sounds of the Diaspora, Persian Pop and Tehrangelis, features a rich and important conversation with Professor Farzana Hemasi and Professor Arash Saidinia. We are your hosts for this exciting episode, Sounds of the Diaspora, Persian Pop and Tehrangelis. My name is Samuel Singleton, and I'm here with my co-host, Nazli Buzari. We are interns at the center. Today we'll be discussing the role of music in the Iranian diaspora, specifically in the hub of Persian pop music production, Los Angeles, otherwise known as Tehrangelis. Music around the globe is a means to entertain, emote, celebrate, as well as to process grief and pain, and love and life. For those of us in the Iranian diaspora, music has often helped to connect us to our parents' homeland, mother culture, as well as to soothe feelings of displacement, pain, and helplessness, and to connect with our history and culture. Music has been a mainstay of life in the Iranian diaspora, and Los Angeles has been ground zero for the production, circulation, and distribution of music by Iranian pop artists over the past four decades. Los Angeles has been the home of record shops on Westwood Boulevard and a source of inspiration for other musicians, including artists who sample Persian music from earlier generations or in Western rap. The soundtrack of Iranian life can be found in every corner of the world. But today, we'll be talking about Los Angeles as the wellspring for where much of that music originated. To discuss the history and nuances of Persian pop music today, we are proud and honored to be joined by two expert intellectuals, Professor Arash Saidinya and Professor Farzana Hemasi. Born in Esfahan and raised in Los Angeles, Arash Saidinya has studied political science at UC Berkeley, creative writing at Cal State Northridge, and law at Harvard University, and he is currently a professor of English at Los Angeles City College. Professor Saidinya has served as a contributing editor to the magazine B. Tarof, and is a DJ and collector, working for several decades to assemble an archive of vintage Iranian popular music. He also co-curated the highly influential compilation Pomegranates, Persian pop, funk, folk, and psych of the 60s and 70s. Professor Farzana Hemasi is an associate professor in the Ethnomusicology Department at the University of Toronto. She received her doctorate with distinction from Columbia University and has held fellowships with the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University. Professor Hemasi is currently working on a collaborative project on music in Toronto's Kensington Market, and her recent work regarding the Tehrangelis music scene, Dreaming, Intimacy and Imagination in Southern California's Iranian pop music has garnered significant praise. Thank you both for joining us today. This is part two of our conversation. You know, I'm really glad you brought up this topic of the distribution of Persian music, mainly within Tehrangelis through these small venues that turned out to be bigger venues. I wanted to ask you, since you have talked so much about the difficulties of finding this music and transporting it to Iran and back, how much of CDs, cassettes, and other devices played a role in the distribution of this music? Do you believe music distribution has changed the landscape of Los Angeles, perhaps through small businesses like Music Box? You know, in a certain sense, any kind of popular music that we define as popular um, from the early 20th century forward, any place, is depends on recording technology for its popularity. Right? And it records on technologies of distribution, like radio, broadcast, or, you know, now the internet, and so on. There's a way in which 
in order for something new to become popular, to be accessible, it has to go to media, right? We can also talk about folk music, for instance, whatever folk music is, being widespread, but it, it's generally thought to precede mediation, you know, technological mediation. Um, so we're talking about popular music from, we're talking about music that moves and that moves quickly or has the potential to move quickly and music that's wrapped up in different types of economic transactions, right? It's not freely given necessarily for the artists to survive, for the companies to survive. There has to be some exchange of money. In my research, the focus on media has been, there's been several different things that I've been thinking about. I'll just say a little bit about an article that I wrote about a pre-revolutionary performance by Dariush of Sham Luz Padilla. And thinking about what the difference is for that to exist as a book, so a medium of a book, versus being sung as part of a pop song and then distributed through radio, you know, record stores and so on. And one of the questions about that song that Dariush has asked and its producer has asked, Manucher Bibian has asked, is why was the poem allowed to be published by um, Sean Lu's poem allowed to be published, even has subversive messages in it um, that were pretty well understood, it seems, by the folks reading it in the 1970s and earlier. Why was it allowed to be published as a poem, but then prohibited from being distributed once it became a song? And there's a lot of answers to that question, none of which can be summed up to, you know, music is more powerful and therefore it must be stopped, you know, uh, but art also can be on some level related to the how different forms of culture circulate, right? A lot more people can hear a pop song than can, can read a poem. And that was especially true uh, prior to the revolution where, when literacy rates weren't very high. So I think thinking about music and thinking about diaspora also, I'll say that for myself growing up, my Persian wasn't good enough to understand most of what was in these songs, but I could hear them and I could have access to them because they were media. I wasn't going to sit down and read a book, but I could learn to say Ah Jun and dance, you know, by listening and watching. So dance is also a medium. So anyway, in terms of CDs, cassettes, and physical media, the time that I started going to Los Angeles to do this research was in mid to late 2000s. And it was, that was the moment when what I call the object-oriented music market, so the ability for people to make money selling CDs, physical CDs, was really starting to decline. I mean, the internet and the MP3 format was rocking people's worlds. And in Los Angeles, the music companies had not figured out how to make that transition. And no music company had figured it out at that point. And so their profitability was really, which was already kind of tenuous for some of them, was, was really a problem. The problem for them was also, you know, not being able to control where their music traveled, but not being able to control how, who made money from or who had their, their music because of this MP3 format also um, was what allowed it to have global circulation and even more distribution than it had before because it was easy to move. It's been really interesting to see how, how things have changed. I know maybe Arash will talk a little bit about how music stores in Los Angeles where uh, shops were for a long time selling um, actual cassettes and CDs and so on have recently closed and music shop record shops everywhere have closed, right? And then also opened again because vinyl has become kind of trendy. But that's, a, that's at a much different level right so I'd, I'd say the format and is super important I actually want to say Farzana's um, book is amazing really I think provides a lot in terms of thinking about 
because she's witnessing what's happening at a, at an important moment for certain producers and certain companies who are trying to find their way forward. And this is really important because, well, they're diasporans that are, you know, business people trying to make it, but also they're actively involved in something that matters a lot to some of us and should matter a whole lot to every Iranian because Persian pop matters. Persian pop is this subject that, you know, really doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Again, Farzana's book, I think, speaks to a lot of these issues and uh, deserves uh, listeners' attention. Of course, oftentimes in the academic world and in the culture at large, so-called popular art or popular culture doesn't occupy a place of prominence, but that's increasingly untrue. We have people like Bob Dylan receiving the Nobel Prize that, that tells us something about where we're going. And yet, you know, Persian pop, this is something that a lot of people, whether they want to admit it or not, love or care about, but don't necessarily see as a subject of serious discussion, inquiry, exploration, research, and so on. It's funny that when I was initially trying to get the rights and gather information on the music of the pre-revolution that I was uh, focused on with pomegranates, I met with many of these people and I was told of this woman from Canada who was asking questions, you know. There weren't many people in the, in the field. That, may, that, that is in fact changing, but it's, it's a credit to Farzana in terms of having this interest and in pursuing it when she pursued it, that she was able to talk to people at, uh, of, uh, during a very important time. And what we're seeing is that streaming has led to the demise of obviously physical product, but that's had really serious consequences for producers and for companies. Tarane Records, which, is, uh, which figures importantly in Farzana's book, is a really, really important company. I mean, they put out a lot of the most important records in Terangelis. We could say that Tarane and Caltex are the two major imprints. And Tarane is really special to me in a place that I spent a considerable amount of time in uh, during my, you know, forays and attempts to, to archive and, and collect things. And its owners, uh, Vartan Avanesian and Jangir Tavariyoyi are people that are really important in the history of Persian pop in Iran and outside of Iran. They had interesting careers before the revolution and they were responsible for important records and sold records in shops, had a distribution capacity at retail, were producers of records. Their story deserves to be told. I'm, I'm sad to say that Oraya uh, Tabariyoyi passed away over a year ago, and his story deserved to be told. And unfortunately, I don't think enough has been done to, to record these stories, to know their narrative as fully as what would have been possible if we, were, if, if we collectively were paying more attention to, to Persian pop. With the the question of the question of distribution and the object itself is a really important one because 
the physical product matters, the object matters. And the great thing about, I mean, you think about this in terms of the archive broadly, think about if we think about the archive in the era of the letter and the telegram and all the rest of that, if we think about, let's say, the, the United States government archive, if we look at the United States government archive in the 1940s and 1950s, the physical traces, the physical objects, the record that exists is very different from the, the archive as it's constituting itself in the era of the electronic communication. The great thing about a record is that, and I mean a music record, is that it oftentimes not only gives us discographical data, which in the Iranian scene, and when it comes to Persian pop, can often be very limited. What I mean by that is if you look at pre-revolution pop, oftentimes you have very, very few things noted. You might have the name of, well, you have the name of the singer, you may have the name of the composer, you may have the name of the, of the uh, arranger and the uh, writer of the music, uh, and not much else. You'd be hard-pressed to find a record prior to the revolution that has a date on it, which is interesting. Um, but they also leave traces of other things, too. You know, I mean, there's the, there, there, there's the typography, there are the production values that go into the record itself. There is, there are the photographs that are used. There are the illustrations. There is the quality of the recording as there's the actual integrity of the recording constituted as a piece of vinyl, as a cassette, uh, and so on, which is really important when we consider that with a lot of these, with a lot of the, the compositions, with a lot of the music itself, uh, much was lost much was actively destroyed. And so if we want to, you know, archive and preserve those things, what are the elements that we have available to us? Right. Uh, this is a big part of my practice and, and much of what I'm, what I'm interested in. So the physical product does matter and we see, we see less of that. The story of, of the actual records themselves in Iran, that's a story that deserves wider and more exhaustive telling uh, because so much of it was actively destroyed, right? So that's, when you look at Persian pop, you and you look at the records themselves, that story, you think about the objects themselves, is very different than the story of other national musics, if you will, because it's rare that you find a pop music that is deliberately and systematically destroyed and uh, removed from public and private um, spaces in the way that it was in Iran for, for many, many years. And of course, squirreled away and kept and preserved and celebrated in certain spaces and places. In terms of Tarangelis and looking at the, the records and the cassettes themselves, it's fascinating because, well, when you think about the object, many of the first records to come out of LA by Iranians, including Iranian minorities like Armenians, uh, were pressed on vinyl. And that's a really interesting history. And there, there, are certain, there are certain records that very few people know about, but are imp important in terms of telling that history. Because the story of diasporans in Los Angeles is a story that, that stretches back many, many decades. And actually should, it, and this narrative of, of the revolution and of people leaving, or they're here, they happen to be here, needs to be ex expanded. Of course, with the revolution, many, many more people come over and that comes at a time when cassettes are quite popular and a lot of the early music of Herangelis comes out, in some cases, both on vinyl and cassette, 
for the most part, it's on cassette. And I'm really interested in those cassettes, increasingly interested in those cassettes and in, in archiving those cassettes. Those cassettes are oftentimes being sold in supermarkets. Yeah. They're being sold in, you know, places that are not devoted to uh, music. But that that is not always the case. And, and, and something that I think is a, a place that really deserves celebration and deserves attention is um, Music Box, which Farzana mentioned, which was which is a microcosm of Iranian life in Tarangelis and is a really important space for looking in a nuanced manner at what the story of diaspora is in Los Angeles. And it's fascinating to consider the story of that store and its owner who uh, just passed away. Um, Abbas Chamanara, I would say, was in some sense the real mayor of Tarangelis. And Music Box was as important as any space in this town for Iranians to convene, ostensibly for a CD or a cassette, and increasingly for concert tickets as physical product became less and less a necessity or a object that people would acquire. Definitely a historical landmark though. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, I would say that I would say that Music Box and Sherkati Ketab on Westwood Boulevard were really the anchors of the Westward Corridor, what is often referred to as Persian Square. The funny thing about calling that space Persian Square is there's no square there, but we call it Persian Square. Raya um, Abbas was um, was someone that he, he his place was a, a hub for activity and losing him and losing Music Box is a loss that is incalculably um, grave for, I think, uh, Iranians in Los Angeles. And unless we really think actively and consciously about what we want our Persian square or Tehranjilis to be, it will, it will have, you know, serious consequences for, for the shape and the contours and the life of, of this community. This man was, um, was a living treasure and his place was incalculably important. Um, and, and it, and it pains me that, um, we're not honoring him as a community in the way that he deserves to be honored. To, um, to fit this into the discussion here, you know, I'm really concerned, and, and Persis knows this, I'm really concerned about the state of their archives and what's going to happen to those elements, which is why I've been really trying, and, and Farzana, you know this because I brought it up, I'm really trying to figure out how I can approach these really, the, these really important people with, the institutional support to say, you know, a, a such and such university or institution foundation is prepared to pay uh, a small sum to take these elements and to, to give them the archival attention that they deserve, cataloging them and preserving them and so on and so forth. Well, thank you so much for being so candid and talking to us about the tragic passing of Aurea Tabarai, as well as the history of Music Box and the legacy that Aurea Chamanoro left behind.
Music Box is a record store that opened up before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And from what I've gathered, Abbas Chamanara comes to the United States because he wants to open up this record store. And he's also really interested prior to the revolution in pressing records in the United States for distribution in Iran. Meanwhile, he wants to have a full service record store and he, he does, he has one. Uh, in the southern part of Los Angeles County. It, it, later, it moves to the Westwood Corridor. And he works with some interesting people on a one imprint, for example, called Soundex. Oraya Avanesian, to the extent that I know, was involved with Soundex, and they, they pressed some vinyl. In the early days of, I mean, some of this is happening in the very early 1980s. And those records are really interesting. Uh, Abbas Chamanara is one of the Chamanara brothers, and the Chamanaras had, without a doubt, the most important record store in Tehran and in all of Iran called uh, Beethoven. And Beethoven was the retail presence of that family that was also responsible for arguably the most prestigious record label production company in the history of uh, Iranian music called Ahengeruz. Mm. And so there are interesting um, through lines there in terms of the Chamanara family and music production and all the rest of that. When you look at the, when you look at um, Tarane, well, Tarane and Oreya uh, Avanesian, for example, uh, Vartan Avanesian was one of the founders of royal music, which is a really important imprint in Iran prior to the revolution. And so at times these people, when they're, well, the, the story in some sense is that people are working here prior to the revolution. Again, the physical object really matters because when you have the physical object, it becomes a way for us to try to ascertain certain things from the object itself. And then it becomes a modality for having discussions with people. I was talking to uh, the producer, uh, Farouk Elton Ahi, who's a really fascinating diaspora and one of our most interesting diasporans who's worked in music. And Farzana talks about Farouk Ahi uh, in her book. Um, this is someone who was a DJ at Studio 54, who studied at USC, came to the United States to study at USC, was a DJ at the famed Studio 54 at the height of it, had produced records, was the mastermind behind disco records and became a really, really important producer in Tarangelis. Um When I, when I, when I talked to him about a Gugush record that had been imprinted on the Ohangaruz label here in Los Angeles, he told me that Gugush was going to give a concert in Southern California. And the idea was that they were going to press this record in conjunction with that concert. And that's why that record came out. And so the, the records themselves are really interesting and important. Music Box. Music Box is the base for Chamanora to sell a lot of different records. And he did that for, for many, many years. The realities of streaming and all the rest of that, I think, compelled him to shift or at least survive more on ticket sales than on uh, cassettes themselves. But if, you, if one looks at his story and the story of Music Box, it's interesting because it, it goes far before the revolution. I mean, not necessarily very far the mid-1970s, and it involves aspects of music production that complicate and illustrate the complexities of the diasporan presence in Los Angeles and the 
history of Persian pop uh, writ large. One of the things I think is so important about Farzana's book is that um, she's interested in thinking about imagining Iran and and dealing with Terangelis, and this is something that really deserves a, ample discussion, Terangelis as the soundtrack for Iranians in Iran. And that's something that should not be underappreciated, that we should pay attention to Terangelis because it was the soundtrack of Iranian life in Los Angeles and in other cities. But it was also in large part for a very long time until music production picked up um, in earnest. It was the soundtrack for Iranians in, it was the pop soundtrack for Iranians in Iran. How are more recent immigrants from Iran shaping the pop music scene? Or how are second and third generation Iranian Americans, for example, shaping that scene in new ways slash formats? So one thing to say is about this is that many generations of Iranian musicians have felt it necessary to leave Iran in order to realize their career goals, whether that is because of restrictions around music locally or because they would like to do something different than is easy to do in Iran or for economic reasons. So we have this continual outflow of musicians from Iran into a variety of locations in diaspora, but because of Los Angeles's historical and to a certain extent continuing importance for Iranian media, Los Angeles ends up being a destination. Thinking about recent immigrants, you know, recent as a relative term, I still think of Shadmir Aqili as a recent immigrant, though he came, <laughs> he came a long time ago at this point. But he had produced one of the first pop albums in Iran after music was permitted, uh, popular music was permitted to be released there. His, his, I think it was 1997 album, Dehati, was referred to by some people as Los Angelesi music made in Iran. So then when he came to Los Angeles, he kind of was already a pop musician and was able to restart his career just as an older generation of musicians who had been practicing prior to the revolution had done. It's a bit different, of course, but he's an example of somebody who had grown up in post-revolutionary Iran or come of age in post-revolutionary Iran who was able to make that transition to, to Los Angeles. Now, more recently, we can think of Sasi Mankan. So Sasi had a career in Iran as an underground, quote-unquote, underground musician, somebody who didn't have permission from the government to record or have concerts, but who had become really famous through informal circulation of his mp3s and of his really well-produced music videos. So Sasi was also doing pop music but had was part of a you know small group who was innovating pop music that combined rap and very slangy lyrics, humor, it didn't take itself very seriously. And singing, of course, he also sings. And this is party music, right? So when Sasi left Iran, and finally made his way to Los Angeles, he too was able to enter the pop music scene. And so 
even though he's many generations apart from somebody like Andy, who has been in Los Angeles since the late 1970s, maybe the early 80s, I can't remember when he arrived, even though they are quite different from each other in terms of uh, generation, life experience, the kind, the Iran that they know, they are now working together in that they're touring together. I can go and see them in Toronto in January, along with Kamran and Human, who are also going to be coming through. So that's several different generations of Iranian performers in the pop industry who are working together. Now, I think one aspect of the question that I want to return to is how recent immigrants from Iran are shaping the pop music. At this point, because of communications technology, the internet, etc., file sharing, we don't need for people to immigrate to be able to participate in music. And we can't even really say that it's in Los Angeles because it's maybe produced in the spaces in between. So I'm thinking of somebody like Ruzbe Bemani, who was Iran-based, but was contributing to pop music productions in Los Angeles again and again. And, and actually got in trouble for it from the government because he was collaborating so much with uh, Los Angeles singers. The younger generation, or as time has passed, the communications technologies, relationships are extending back into Iran and back out again. And these are financial relationships, they're collaborative, um, creative relationships, and it makes it a little bit difficult to say exactly where the music is from in a geographical sense, which to me is super interesting, right? It's, it's like it really is transnational. Um, so you also asked about second and third generation Iranians. What I see, and I'll, I'll be honest here that my powers of observation on this are not very strong because I'm not, I'm not focused on this issue, but what I have seen is that second and third generation, maybe just second really, or 1.5 generation Iranians, Iranian Americans, Iranians in other parts of diaspora are more involved on the business end or on the songwriting or production or video directing end than they are as performers. So their presence might not be as apparent to people who aren't watching carefully, looking at the names and trying to connect the biographies. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that um, Persian pop music is Persian because its language is Persian. So the people who are really able to sing in Persian well, uh, without an accent, um, in a way that stylistically people understand as Persian, is are people who have grown up speaking Persian. So that may apply to some folks who've lived outside of Iran for a long time and grew up and are able to speak really fluently. But um, a lot of times the talent, the, the quote unquote talent, the front, the uh, frontliners um, are people who have come from Iran more recently. So that kind of, there's a little bit of a maybe division of labor between people who know how to work the business angles and have the relationships and the facility with how things are done in the music industry or entertainment industry on this end of the world and people who have the um, ability to perform convincingly in Persian on the other. Thank you again so much for this awesome discussion that was so full of information. I will say, as someone who is a second-generation diaspora member, the music that I listen to nowadays, specifically Persian music, has made me feel so connected to my culture, whereas in high school, I certainly didn't make much of an effort to really listen to it and at times thought it was a little weird. But I'm glad I grew out of that mindset and changed my outlook because I realize now that the Damboli Dimboli music is something that brings me a lot of joy and brings me a lot of connection to my community. And so I think we're going to wrap it up with one last question. 
we wanted to ask you about Persian pop music's relation to the West today. Do you see any Persian swana influence in Western mainstream music? Yeah, I mean, Kanye's sampled at least two of the songs that were on Pomegranates. So once he used it for one of his solo projects, he used it on a Nas track. Persian pop music is really interesting to a, a lot of people, a lot of Iranians uh, who are in music production and also to non-Iranians. And a lot of the music's been widely sampled by some of the most you know, esteemed and interesting producers, which speaks to how vital and interesting and khas Persian pop is within the, what we could call the frame of the pop international. And, and it's worth saying that the records are really interesting because so often they're influenced by really hip music mm. of the United States and uh, 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 and Europe. And some of the most interesting artists were people who at some point lived abroad. The idea is not here that um, we privilege those who lived abroad uh, against those who, who didn't live abroad, but um, many artists were really adept at incorporating the sounds that they discovered outside of the country and the sounds that made their way to Iran. One of the really fascinating and delightful aspects of record collecting in Iran and running after records is looking at what got pressed in Iran. You know, Shaft was popular in Iran, yeah. right? Not just, the, not just the first film and not just the first soundtrack, but subsequent soundtracks. Um, and sometimes it can be surprising what made it to Iran. I have a 45 uh, that I found in Iran. Uh, on, on one side is the MC5, which is a really important hard rock proto-punk band that, yeah, w did have major label distribution, but MC5 in Iran, who was listening to that? A lot of times it's a hodgepodge, but, you know, again, referring to that cache of records that my mom had in that suitcase in Tehran, there was Desmond Decker, there was Serge Gansburg and Jane Birkin, there was James Brown, and there was Mer Puya, and there was Daryush, and there was Gugush, and a lot of times those cats are listening to one another. And I think that when we look, especially we go beyond the, the confines of the pre-revolution to thinking about what recording artists are listening to, uh, people like Robert Plant, who, as I understand it, made his way to Music Box in Westwood. Um, we look at um, we look at others. They're really interested in the music of the region of the region, and it influences them and it influences the music. I think it's also really interesting because even in the diaspora in our generation, you have the influence of nostalgic Persian pop music in a mainstream kind of arena through people like Danny Asadi. He samples music from people like Gugush, Farmaz Aslani, and other famous Iranian musicians, as well as just more like traditional Iranian sounds. And he mixes that with trap music. Interesting to see how nostalgia within our community, specifically through the music has come full circle. 
And kids who are our age are starting to incorporate that into their playlists as well as their actual creative outlets. Thank you guys again for speaking with us today. I'd like to thank you guys for this opportunity uh, to talk and to share um, ideas. It's been really great to get to know Arash. I already knew his pomegranates collection. And I have to say that when I saw it, I saw the announcement for it online, I thought, we've arrived, (laughs) (laughs) because this was music that had been floating around among Iranians, but all of a sudden it was in a format and in a package, you know, that was really important. That was, that allowed it to be seen and perceived by um, people who might not have picked up one of those cassette tapes at the local Iranian supermarket. We don't know what the next narratives about Iran and Iranian-ness and Iranians are going to be. And we know pop music in diaspora has been, it's like a, you know, (laughs) at the risk of using a kind of weird metaphor, it's like a delicate flower. (laughs) It's a delicate flower that has lived under really adverse conditions. If it isn't tended and if it isn't, you know, if if people don't notice it within the rush of everything else, it will really fade away. Um, So the efforts um, by Arash, by by me, by you guys in making this podcast are really important to uh, bring attention to something that I think has been really easy to take for granted because it's been, it's just been around. It's been the atmosphere and um, for for at least a a couple of generations of Iranians. But it's part of our Iranian-American history. It's a part of our transnational Iranian history, Um, speaking with people who've grown up in Iran during the 1980s and 90s especially. It's a very special part of their memory of time of oftentimes really challenging times, war and revolution, aftermath. Um, You know, Dariush was with them during that period from from far away, or, uh, you know, Shahram Shabpare was with them from far away. So... I think it's really important to invest the time and um, the resources and the attention in in preserving and and developing the narratives that allow uh, those of us who already appreciate it and those of us who may be skeptical or just unaware of of its richness um, to be preserved and to be communicated um, so that we can use it also to craft whatever our next iterations of being Iranian will be. Thank you to all of you for doing this. This is wonderful. And I can't tell you how delighted I am that you're doing this work. And um, Persis knows how much I appreciate her. I mean, she's she means more to me than I could say in the space of a few seconds. Um, I, I want to say that Farzana's book is really without precedent. It's serious and at times it's very sly and playful. I urge listeners who are interested in the subject to, to seek it out. Uh, Persian pop music is the modality, but it speaks so much to the to our experience as um, diasporans. I also want to shout out Omid Valizadeh, and I encourage listeners to find his Instagram, which is really wonderful because he is a longstanding producer who's been involved in the hip-hop community in Los Angeles for a very long time, is someone who was born in Iran, came to the United States, and has had a long-standing interest in the music of the pre-revolution and a real strong interest in the Tarantula's pop sound and is incorporating more of those sounds into his work. The archive that he works with is really interesting. His music is amazing. Look for his record, Modern Persian Speech Sounds. 
It's fantastic. I would say for listeners also, YouTube is an incredible resource for looking at things. Um, watch the YouTube video of Shahbal Shahpares of the Black Cats Rango Rank. Yeah. It's worth a few minutes of your time. I would say that Tarangelis pop, the Tarangelis pop sound is not all Dambol Dimbol. Uh, there's more to it. And, and I'm excited to be working on things that I hope will, on projects that, that will perhaps um, give greater precedence to some of the more obscure sounds that came out on these cassettes. The story of the supermarket cassette rack is um, more expansive than just dance music, but that dance music does matter. And those sounds, the sounds that we dance to, those spaces in which we convene to and all the rest are an important part of our story and something that really does deserve serious and nuanced attention. And I think, again, that Farzana's book is really vital in this regard. Thank you all again. Thank you, Thank so you much. all so much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Professor Farzana Hemasi and Arash Saidinia, for this exciting and important discussion. Please make sure to check out Farzana's book, Tehrangelis Dreaming, Intimacy and Imagination in Southern California's Iranian Pop Music, through her website, farzana-hemmesi.com. Also, make sure to check out Arash's compilation, Pomegranates, available here on Spotify, as well as on finderskeepersrecords.com. Also, thank you to the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University and Persis Karim, who serves as its director. A big shout out and thank you to Ariana Damovandi, Communications Manager at the Center for Guidance, Samira Khapozodarashti for research, and Center Intern Joseph Ara for editing and tech. And thank you to Ariana Bustani for the music. To learn more about the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies, go to the website at www.ids.sfsu.edu. Thank you. Thank you.